the prince's part. From There Is Nothing to Fear by Santissime, read by Sam Gabriel, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Nineteen ninety one. Mr. Prince of Strangid fourteen was proud to say that he had never stuck his nose into anyone's business, least of all the business of his neighbors, and he appreciated it when they, that is, his neighbors, could extend him the same courtesy. It seemed like there was always something strange going on in his little house. Peculiar bangs and flashes from the lower window on the left or persons exiting his house when everyone up and down the street was quite sure that they had never entered. But so long as you limited any comments to what was infringing on your daily peace and you accepted it when he said that such events would stop, and they always did, then he was a good neighbor, if a stern and quiet one. There were only a few things which anyone really knew about Mr. Prince. He was a Canadian expatriate, though he spoke Danish perfectly fluently and without a hint of accent. His chief source of employment was as a druggist at the corner of Jomfrustin and Tarupvai, but he also, when the mood struck him, taught classes at one university or another, on topics as varied as introduction to Victorian flower language, trolls in world mythology, and applied domestic chemistry, which he was happy to admit was just a fancy way to say cooking. Most of all, of course, it was known that he had a son, Harry Prince, whom he cared for more deeply than anything else in the whole world. There were many things which were unknown to his neighbors on Strangooth, however, and the secrets which he and his son kept were more terrible than anything that his neighbors dreamt of. When he was not in the house, Harry could usually find Mr. Prince in one of two places. It was not twilight, which meant that there would be no use in going up to the lawn chair on the roof walk, so Harry went out to the backyard to find Mr. Prince, as expected, working in the garden. All manner of fruit, herb, and vegetable could be spotted there, from crazy berries to knit bone to pungous onions. The garden was the one indulgence which Mr. Prince permitted himself, and it was almost as important to him as Harry was. Severus, there's a Magnus and time here to see us, he said, and Mr. Prince paused. His fingers curled tight around the wax potato he was digging out. Undheim, he said, and then Magnus, Norwegian, he frowned. They were in Denmark, as the muggles labeled things, Copenhagen specifically, but as far as wizards were concerned, they were living in Norway, Denmark, and the Norwegian name was one of two things to take notice of. The other, of course, was that this was Harry's birthday. There will be no avoiding it, then, said Mr. Prince, and he rose to his feet with a pained groan. Magnus Undheim had already made himself at home when Harry and his father returned, and had the audacity to look impatient. His eyes seemed almost heavy, as though his gaze had weight to it, and he did not appear to like what he saw in their house. Nearly invisible beneath his walrus mustache, a bitter frown took shape. "'You are headed, Prince?' he questioned, as if he hoped dearly that he was mistaken, so that he might not have to spend one minute longer in this place— there was nothing strictly wrong with the house, not by Harry's standards, but the room was lit by bulbs, the refrigerator was humming softly, and both Mr. Prince and Harry were dressed in trousers. Basically, it was all very muggle-like. "'I am,' Harry said. He tried to stand a little straighter, but before Untime's stature, the attempt only made him feel smaller. Beside him, Mr. Prince gave Untime a very special look, the sort which he reserved for cockroaches and other people's children.' Though Mr. Prince was a little shorter than Undheim, Harry rather felt that his father had done a good job on the glare. 
certainly in time seems to quail by the smallest of degrees. "'A representative from Durmstrang, I presume,' said Mr. Prince, in a tone that seemed intended to remind the wizard that it was he who was imposing on them, and not the other way around. Untan nodded. "'Professor of Astronomy.' "'Indeed,' Mr. Prince lifted an eyebrow. "'The boy has not yet attended. I cannot imagine how he could possibly have gotten into trouble already.' Briefly he glanced in Harry's direction, as if to ask whether Harry had merely decided to exceed his expectations, and there was some problem after all. The other man snorted, but it was derisive rather than amused. "'None of his lineage have yet attended, Darmstrang. It is customary in such circumstances to send a member of the faculty. Perhaps you would know that if you had the barest of magical talent,' said Professor Untheim, though he seems to have given his best efforts to spit the words instead." I was astonished to learn that you could produce a child that wrecked the Korkoroff judged worthy of attendance. It was a testament to Mr. Prince's mastery of occlumency that he did not give the slightest reaction to Untime's words. Mr. Prince was very talented indeed, at least if Harry was any judge of it, but the two of them had come to Denmark in order to hide, and it was his belief that they were less remarkable as a squib and his son than as an internationally talented potions master and his son, who, on second thought, did not resemble him so very much. That idea seems to have occurred to Untime, in fact. If that is, he actually is your son, and not some boy that you stole from a properly magical family in a fit of jealousy. He certainly does not resemble you. He takes after his mother, in that way. The boy does have my eyes, at least, Mr. Prince added, and it was true after a fashion, or rather Mr. Prince had Harry's eyes, or more accurately, a set of bright green contacts that were modeled after them. It was better if they resembled each other in ways that could be managed. And if Harry went to Durmstrang with colored lenses on his eyes, then somebody would notice eventually. You may verify it for yourself if you wish. Untime turned his nose up a fraction of an inch higher than before, but did not press the matter further. Clearly he believed their story and had no interest in pursuing a line of inquiry that would only eat up his own time. Well, blood will out, as they say. Perhaps someday we will have more exacting standards than those which have allowed a squib's spawn to attend. "'I am sure that Rector Karkaroff will be delighted to hear your opinion on the matter,' drawled Mr. Prince, and Untime deflated ever so slightly. "'Nevertheless, it remains that circumstances are as they are, and I am here,' Untime continued, a little snappily. "'As your son represents a new lineage at Darmstrang Institute, and as my luck has been extraordinarily poor this season, it falls upon me to enlighten you of certain necessities. First of all, dress warmly.' the man instructed. Hot air charms are not taught the students, so that you may learn the value of exercising a little initiative. Most students do not learn how to permanently bind the charm to their clothing until their fourth year, Untime smirked. While in this case such measures are clearly unnecessary, I am also required to tell you that all personal belongings will be inspected upon your arrival, and any that are found to have been pre-enchanted to provide warmth will be confiscated. Not until the end of term, but until your graduation. Untime paused, then scowled in Mr. Prince's direction. Your mother, and wife at least, attended Hogwarts, he said flatly. I do not know what they danced to reveal to you about Hogwarts, or what you managed to pass on to your child. But I have heard of their house system, and I must impress upon you that there are none of that school's petty rivalries between the breeds of Darmstrang. Breeds? inquired Harry. 
and for a moment he wondered if perhaps the different pure-blood families had their own houses. Darmstrang Institute serves many more students than Hogwarts, even with its admission restrictions, and so, for organizational purposes only, Time said, as though the mere idea that it was for anything else was some sort of personal insult, Darmstrang's noble founder saw fit to divide the students into groups, which she named after her sled dogs at the time. Bjorn, Holdfoot, Nesekluk, and so forth. Your placement will be entirely random, I assure you, and have nothing to do with personality traits or any other such nonsense. Neither the Quidditch nor Sladrock's spiel teams are divided on these lines either. One of Undheim's hands disappeared briefly into a pocket of his great fur coat. It returned with a folded envelope. This contains your ticket and a list of necessary supplies. The ticket is good for passage on the Lurkshames. The ship that will ferry you to Durmstrang. Do not lose it. The Institute will not look kindly upon such carelessness. Untime placed it curtly on the table beside him. On the 18th of August, you must go to the beaches of Stavanger to find your transportation. The ticket will light as you get closer to the place where it will appear and grow dim as you walk in the wrong direction. You can't tell me exactly where to go? And leave the ship open to attack? Your father may be unable to operate up and down the beach to help you reach the Lagsames more quickly, but it is no concern of ours if you do not make it. I suggest that you arrive at the stroke of midnight on the 18th, because the ship will depart 24 hours from the time that the ticket's magic is activated. Harry looked up at his father, then back at Undheim. Durmstrang was said to be paranoid, but this seemed extreme even so. He glanced at Mr. Prince, then opened the envelope to take a look at the book list. Durmstrang Institute of Magical Research and Learning. Besides the miscellaneous items, like the reminder to bring warm clothing, the supply list was organized by class. Astronomy. Charter the Night, Swedish, by Elof Bergren. Charms. Grammatica Magica, Norwegian, by Ragnar Winter. Counterspells. Every spell a puzzle, Norwegian, by Knut Losnadal. Defense Against the Dark Arts. Identification and Prevention of Dark Spells and Creatures, Swedish, by Elizabeth Blom. The Norwegian translation by Agatha Gunderson is also permissible. History of Magic, Scandinavian Sorcery, Volume 1, circa 680 through 1692, Norwegian, by Olaf Olhauser and Igor Karkaroff. Slavic Sorcery, Volume 1, circa 860 through 1692, Norwegian, by Olaf Olhauser and Igor Karkaroff. The Russian translations by Igor Karkaroff are also permissible. Magizoology, Bastarium Magicum, Modern Edition with Original Latin Cross References, Norwegian, by Verena the Younger and Mons Anderson, translator. Martial Magic, Everyday Self-Defense, Moving Pictures Edition, Norwegian, by Ove Solberg. Potions, Essential Potions, Swedish, by Ion Island. Practical Applications of Germanic Futhark. The New Futhark Handbook, Norwegian, by Conrad Goldstad. The Annotated Edda, Norwegian, by Snorri Sturluson and Leanna Solheim, translator. Transfiguration. Essential Transformation, Swedish, by Ion Island. Practical Applications of German Futhark, Harry read aloud. Mr. Prince had warned him about that one, but it was frustrating enough to keep on top of the other languages he was expected to know. Of course. Any product of a proper wizarding family will already know the alphabet, at least. Untime grinned. It is not our problem if yours was deficient. We did not ask you to move here or apply to our program. 
Mr. Prince had ensured that Harry was familiar with more than just the letters, but Untime would have probably found some kind of snide comments to make him reply no matter what Harry had said, so he returns to the list to scan over it a second time. Under no circumstances are students permitted to bring a cat or kneesel, and they bring cold-blooded animals and small prey animals at the creature's own peril. What about owls? If you wish, answered Untime. But letters and packages are only delivered every few months by ship. You may use an owl to deliver messages to and from Landsbygden, if you wish. But there is also a tackle for Chalnavansunder in the village, being of Krupp stock. They are intelligent and able to make local deliveries in exchange for a treat. Who owns them? Harry asked, not wanting to run afoul of any other rules which Untime might have neglected to mention. Professor Untime raised an eyebrow. They own themselves, of course. Krupps are clever beasts. Do you have any other ridiculous questions? He asked, and Harry shook his head. Then I will be leaving. Further inquiries may be made by Flu, if you have access to any powder. If we don't? And then it was good of you to help us keep Durmstrang free of riffraff. And I thank you. Good day, he announced with nasty finality, and Untime raised an arm straight into the air, snapped once, and disapparated where he stood. Mr. Prince scowled at the bit of air where Untime had been. Disapparating on the spot like that was, Harry was pretty sure, a deliberately rude act. His father's mouth opened and shut a few times, and his fingers flecked as if he were trying to grasp the right words to use. But at long last he only sighed and departed to the sitting room. Harry followed him, but only after he fetched a tumbler and the bottle of blackberry whiskey from its place in the cupboard. It was clear that Mr. Prince was descending into one of those moods of his, the sort from which he could never pull himself, only push all the way through to the other side. By the time that Harry entered, Mr. Prince was half slouching, half melting into the ratty armchair where he spent so much of his time indoors. His fingers curled around the tumbler that Harry offered, but his eyes remained fixed on the gold cauldron hanging in their hearth. He took a slow sip of whiskey. It was nine inches long, brittle, pine, with a cord of dragon heartstring, Mr. Prince said as though his wand were gone and not merely stowed away behind some bricks in the cellar, along with a few effects from Harry's parents that hadn't been given over yet. My grandfather's. He passed away before my mother was disinherited. I'm not sure whether she gave it to me for an heirloom or because we were poor. Mr. Prince took another drink, then refilled his glass with the bottle that Harry passed to him. I still remember what it was like, casting my first spell. Harry took a seat in his rocking chair on the other side of the room, then considered what might really be at work here. It didn't seem like Mr. Prince to simply complain, and at any rate, his real interest was in potion-making, which he was still capable of performing behind closed doors. Oh, doors kept things out, didn't they? But they didn't keep out apparating wizards. You can't keep making potions, Harry said upon realizing it. Not if you want to keep your cover as a squib. "'No,' Mr. Prince said, and he shook his head. "'It would be risky to brew under such circumstances.' "'Right. "'And risk was the same thing as certain doom when it came to Mr. Prince. "'The man was insane. "'Severus, you can't destroy yourself just to reduce the odds "'that something bad will happen by another half-percentage point. "'Drink, clink, pour, and drink again. "'Your safety is built upon halves of percentage points.' "'Quarters, even,' Mr. Prince gave a heavy sigh. "'Your parents named me as your godfather with the expectation 
that I would lay down my life for your sake if necessary. That wasn't dying. It was a living death. My mother wouldn't have wanted you your to— Your mother, Severus muttered. Lily. Did I ever? No. I'm sure that I haven't, he said. He looked at the bottle, as though he had nearly committed a great lapse of judgment and the whiskey were to blame, which really might have been true, or at least the second bit. Mr. Prince seemed to come to the same conclusion, because he filled his tumbler again and took another drink, as if his tongue needed a little more loosening. How your parents died, he said at last, in a tone which Harry had most often heard during potions lectures. Harry said nothing, but clasped his hands together and placed them in his lap. There was no telling where this was going to go, except some place that was going to make Mr. Prince feel bad, and perhaps even worse than that, if it upset Harry and Mr. Prince had an attack of guilt after the wine had worn off. When Mr. Prince was determined to drive himself into black clouds, there was little that Harry knew to do but let him write it out and be there for him after it was over. The most brilliant witch that I ever knew, Mr. Prince finally said after the silence had stretched out a little more, and the man who somehow stole her heart. Knowing Mr. Prince, it was at the same time condemnation and compliment that he didn't have anything better to say about Harry's father, his birth father, though Mr. Prince always insisted on real father every time the matter came up in private, and yet did not describe him in more scathing terms. What Mr. Prince did not say could be as important as what he did, or how. James died first, continued Mr. Prince. Dumbledore and I kept him alive for a little while, long enough to see your first birthday. He died the next Halloween. His mark burned him alive, like it had been trying to do for a very long time, and once it had finally caught, the fire could not be put out until his bones had been reduced to ash. He turned his gaze to Harry for the first time since this conversation had begun, your mother died three months later. I do not. Mr. Prince bit his lip and looked away once more. I do not know how. But Riddle found us. The safe house was no longer secure. McKinnon, Pruitt, Crouch. They all died before him. Crouch was the most fortunate. Riddle struck him with only a killing curse. That was most uncharacteristic of him. He liked to make it slow. He used the entrail-extracting curse on Pruitt, then strangled McKinnon while Pruitt died. With Pruitt's... Harry began. Then he let his words trail off as Mr. Prince nodded slowly in reply. Lily told me to take you and run. I thought that it was because I was closer to your room... I thought that she was going to escape as well. I thought that... I thought that she was right behind me, Harry, but she held him off instead. I do not know how she died, or how long it took, or whether she... I want to believe that she did not suffer, and that she bought time for us by dueling long and well, until Riddle granted her the mercy of a quick death. He has done that before. It is also possible that he did not. It was
was difficult for Harry to find the right way to phrase his question, to make sure that it didn't give the wrong impression. He didn't want to sound ungrateful. He didn't want to sound as though he wished that Mr. Prince had died in place of his mother, and yet... and yet... Why didn't she take me? I don't know, Mr. Prince replied, in a hollow tone which suggested that he was more haunted by the question than Harry was. Perhaps because I was closer, and she thought that the extra couple of seconds might make up all the difference, or she felt that she could not ask me to sacrifice myself while she ran, even knowing what my position would have been had she asked me. I will never know. At that point, however, I was positive that Dumbledore would be defeated. And when the papers declared this to be true a few months later, it was no surprise. Nor did it matter, as I had made my plans and taken us to Copenhagen only a few days after the attack. You don't, Severus, we don't have to talk about this, said Harry. But Mr. Prince waved it away, his hand still clutching the bottle. I am telling you this for a reason, Harry, and it is imperative that you comprehend it. Tom Riddle is the greatest duelist of his generation. He was trained by Phileas Flitwick, himself the greatest duelist of his generation. When outnumbered by witches and wizards of high calibre, he has routinely prevailed. Tom Riddle is a monster, and he is only sixty-five years old, still in the prime of his life and with years of experience to add to what he already had almost a decade ago, when he slew Albus Dumbledore in a single combat. Mr. Prince turned his attention to the bottle for a moment, perhaps considering whether to have more. We came to Norway, Denmark, and I faked the paperwork to claim that you were my son and Eileen Prince's grandson, so that you could attend Durmstrang, the premier school in the world for martial magic, not so that you could beat him, but so that you could hold Riddle at bay if he ever pursued you. And it is for this same reason that I cannot risk being discovered as a fully capable wizard. If you want to survive, then you must be given every half, quarter, and one-tenth advantage that I can hand to you. I cannot tell you why Riddle would care that you are alive, not now, not until you are a more proficient Oclemens. But if he were to discover your existence, then he would raise Atlantis from the depths and bring heaven crashing down in order to seize you. As much as I would like to say otherwise, your only hope in living out a natural life lies in escaping his notice. And maybe Mr. Prince believed that. Maybe it was even true. But there were more important things than what Mr. Prince talked about, like what Mr. Prince had done and still did for Harry, who did not have one real father and one who was fake, as Mr. Prince was inclined to believe. But two fathers who were equally real, one who had given him a head of dark hair and what everyone assured him were some dashing good looks, and one who had given him a childhood, Harry did not call Mr. Prince father, except when it was necessary to maintain appearances, because it pained the man to be described in such a way. 
but Harry refrained because he cared for Mr. Prince, and not because the word was false. Mr. Prince could have been right in his evaluation, but it didn't change what Harry thought, either. There was no way for Mr. Prince to live, hiding his magic and giving up even potion-making, in order to keep Harry just a little bit safer. And that was an act which might have to be kept up for decades to come. As paranoid as he was, Mr. Prince might never make another potion for as long as Harry was potentially in danger. Which meant, of course, that Tom Riddle needed to die. If not by Harry's hand, then by someone else's. For Mr. Prince could not really live while that dark wizard survived. For the full text of this and other stories by the same author, visit the archive of our own page of Call Me Saltisside. The music is Amon Ra by Days Witch under a Creative Commons license with assistance from 1T1. If you would like to commission me to record a story, voiceover, or character, please get in touch with me using the contact information on my website, which is located at sangabrielvo.com. And there you can find other stories that I've read, as well as links to my Patreon page, to which I hope you consider subscribing to support me, and my Discord server, where I record things live for your enjoyment. And finally, as always, thank you for listening.